Matt, do you ever think that that countdown thing might be not quite on? Like it's maybe it's not working the, the way that it's supposed to? No, no, I never think that. You never will. I, I always wonder. Like, I just broke the number one rule of improv. You're never just, supposed to say no. <laughs> you just denied everything that I had offered. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. No, I think <laughs> your joke is bad. <laughs> no, I look at those numbers as they come up as we're recording. Five, four, the, the little countdown. I'm like, because one time it skipped. I swear it skipped four. It, it went did. five, I, The three, first time two, we ever one, used it, and I was like, it skipped. I was, I was thinking about so, that Monty Python thing where he's like, one, two, five, you know. <laughs> I actually, I don't know that bit. I, <sighs> I feel as if I am an uncultured person uh, because, yeah, because no, there that's, are many, I mean, it could be, a, it could be like a generation gap, but no, I should I, know that. I agree with you. You're uncultured. <laughs> <laughs> that's a mean thing to say. You know who's not uncultured? I do. Our guest today. <laughs> Are we going to give his name away this time? Our guest today is Mike Aquilina. There it is. <laughs> yeah. He's he's an author of, of many different books. In particular, he, he dives into the fathers of the church a ton. Um, yeah. And so we're talking specifically about his book, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. But uh, fortunately, we're able to branch out into a whole bunch of other things talking about the, the fathers of the church, patristics in general. Check out fathersofthechurch.com. It's his website where he talks about... Well, the fathers of the church. Very good, yeah. You know. Very good. And if that didn't pique your interest, what else is he, uh, you know, well, fairly known for? Folks, I want you to listen through this episode because as as we're going through this episode, you're going to find out some things that he did in the uh, in the music world uh, that involves uh, some some pretty heavy hitters, uh, Grammy yeah. Award winners, people who are, uh, yeah, kind of a big deal. So not only do we have a guy who knows the fathers of the church inside and out, uh, who has been writing for many years uh, and spreading the faith, but we also have somebody who's collaborating with some of the finest artists of, of our time uh, yeah. to, to make some great music. Yeah, yeah. And as, as two musicians, did this excite us? A little bit, a little bit. A little yeah. bit. Yeah, little we, bit. we got a little excited. Um, yeah. And... You know, again, look, we have had the opportunity through this podcast to uh, talk to some people who uh, we're big fans of. And yeah. now to, to talk to somebody who I, I was a big fan of his writing already, but I didn't right. know any of this stuff about his, his right. music. It's Our kinda, fanhood, it, it amplified. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a bigger fan than I was before. I'm not going to yeah. lie. Yeah. And I, I, I'm okay with that. I think it's You good. ever seen that meme of... Uh, it's fans in the it's fans in the stands. It's because no. of COVID, right? And they just put like electrical fans because they yeah. couldn't have fans in the stands. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, it said, "Thank you for our fans." <laughs> Man, puns are a terrible, right. terrible thing. Well, listen, yeah. folks. Yeah. Uh, listen to this episode. If you're listening on the radio, please do us a favor and go and uh, download the podcast version. You can get the podcast. The Tangent with Father Sam Kachuba, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's available on the Veritas Catholic Network app. And uh, hey, when you, uh, when you download the podcast, maybe uh, subscribe. Yeah, like maybe it, follow it. Like it, leave follow a comment. it. Rate Unless it. Unless it's negative. Don't leave any negative comments. Give it lots of stars, all of the stars if you can. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, Make a new account, leave two reviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, um, it's not lying, probably. Uh, <laughs> anyway 
let's let's just let them enjoy this episode about Africa and the early church, the almost forgotten roots of Catholic Christianity with Mike Aquilina. This is The Tangent. God bless you. Mike, thank you so much for for joining us today for The Tangent. It's uh, it's really an honor to have you here. I'm loving your very impressive collection of books you've got back there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess let, let's start there. How many books do you think you have? <laughs> it's in the it's in the thousands. Beyond that, I couldn't say. I've never I've never counted. Uh, uh, but I but I had the good fortune to um, to have have a couple of great scholars as my close friends. And yeah. when they died, they left me their books. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and my wife said, "Oh joy!" <laughs> that is hilarious. I have a deal with my wife that yeah. I have to read ten books before I'm allowed to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> because I I was buying them at such a rate that I could I could never keep up. It was totally mm-hmm, yeah. impractical. Impractical. So yeah. she made me you know agree to this. It's not in writing, but <laughs> but but we might have a video of it. <laughs> R- Renee is a very practical woman, and I think I think you should heed that advice, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Although I did and- text her today saying I have to buy a book. If I have to read eleven before I buy another one, I will. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a good way to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, not only do you own many books, you've also written many books, Mike. Um, yeah. It's up to it's up to over fifty now. Uh, it's probably in the mid seventies now. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so. Wow. Yeah. Again, yeah. Uh, another another impressive number that Matt and I can't even come close yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but because, you know what? It's because you guys have real jobs. You know, I mean, you have to <laughs> you have to work at other things during the day. If writing books is is the only thing or the main thing you're doing, and you have six kids who eat a lot of food, you're going to do a lot of it. Believe me, <laughs> right, right. you're going to do a lot. You're going to produce writing a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. That's well, awesome. I guess our our main purpose today is to talk about uh, your book Africa and the Early Church, mm-hmm. uh, which is really. Uh, you're hitting on some incredible stuff in this mm-hmm. in this book, uh, some things I, I wasn't expecting. And um, I guess as, as we're getting started then diving into Africa and the early church, we're eventually going to have to talk about some of your other books as well, because there's there's a lot going on here. Uh, mm-hmm. But as you're as you're looking at this, Africa and the early church, what is Africa? <laughs> what is Africa? Well, Africa meant many things uh, in the in the ancient world, and uh, and I try to try to deal with that in the beginning. Uh, in the course of the book, I kind of divide Africa up into um, into three units. Uh, one is the the Roman province of Africa, you know, North Africa, which included um, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, those countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and then I also consider uh, Egypt, and with Egypt, Sudan and Eritrea, you know, countries that were dependent on it in that time. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, I I I I, I deal with Ethiopia, um, which mm. which is its own thing and a very different and and wonderful thing. Um, so so there um, there are three divisions that I, that 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 show up with some regularity in the ancient historical records of Christianity. Okay. And with each of those, we're going to start seeing different influences. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, in, in Egypt with Alexandria, there's, yeah. there seems to be a, a bit of a heavier Greek influence coming in, whereas mm-hmm. that northern part of Africa, there's more of the, the Roman, the Latin influence. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit about that Latin influence and, and what actually is happening there, historically, well, you know, in the terms of the development of theology? There was a long-running rivalry and war 
between Rome and Carthage in North Africa, and and it was a it was a brutal war. It was vicious, and um, and so when Rome finally won, they crushed North Africa, and they made it a colony, right? And they sent a lot of their soldiers to live there, uh, and and make it kind of a a Roman outpost there in North Africa, and they were going to rule it with a heavy hand. But, but you know, that uh, hostility subsides after a certain amount of time. And the, um, and the soldiers and the other colonists, they, uh, they, they interact with the populations around them, the native populations. And there were several na- populations native to, um, to, to what became Roman North Africa. So it became a distinctive culture, right? Mm. And it, it really started to flourish. And... And literary culture in Carthage, especially, was undergoing a renaissance in uh, the first century BC into the first, second, third centuries of the of, of the uh, of what we call the Christian era. Of course, they didn't know it was at the time, but they were producing many, many great authors: uh, Apuleius, the novelist; uh, Terence, the playwright. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the historian, and his name just went out my ear. Uh, but um, uh, uh, but uh, there were many famous authors and also mm. many famous legal thinkers. You know, Carthage became a center of legal thought. And the thought really flowed the other way. You know, it flowed to Rome uh, because Carthage was was producing all of these great writers at that time. And the the uh, they were influencing Rome, right? Mm. Uh and that happened in the Christian uh, church as well. It's uh, we we find Christianity emerging in the historical record around 170 A.D. That probably means that there were Christians there uh, before that, but they reached a critical mass around that time, and they started they started to be noticed. When you're noticed, you're persecuted, and uh, and so we <laughs> the first document. In the record is of the the, the acts of the Silitan martyrs, which is mostly a, a court stenographer's work, just the um, the interrogation of mm. these of these martyrs by the uh, by the magistrate there. Uh, so um, soon after that, we have uh, Tertullian appearing on the scene. He's one of the great church fathers. He's uh, one of the great figures of the early church and uh, one of the great writers of all time. He had mm. a, he had a style and and he. Uh, he, he's he's just a joy to read. Uh, so he's the first major Christian writer in Latin, and he's a giant. You know, we have many of his works that have survived for 2,000 years now, uh, and, and they were bestsellers in their own time in the Christian orbit. Hmm. So Tertullian and others, okay, there's uh, uh, Perpetua and Felicity, uh, and, uh, well, Perpetua's Diary became a bestseller also around that time. So all of these uh, these Christian authors are are appearing at that time. They're the first major Christian authors in Latin. Now, people were writing in Latin in Rome, but there wasn't a Christian Latin culture there that was as advanced as it was in Carthage in North Africa. Uh, Which is a weird thing to think about when, when yeah, you look at the Roman Empire yeah. and, mm-hmm. well, Latin is their language, but somehow in their capital... Rome, Latin, didn't have that same linguistic culture already deeply rooted. It's, it's yeah. a fascinating idea. How does that happen? Well, <laughs> you know, you can't predict where uh, a renaissance is going to take place. Uh, mm. th- think about the, the Greek-speaking church. What was the intellectual capital of the Greek-speaking church consistently for hundreds of years? It was Alexandria in Egypt, 
right? That was the intellectual capital. That's where the great library was. That's where the research institutions were. Uh, that's where the, the first major Christian school emerged. Uh, so, so you have that going on. It, 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 it's, it's just so hard to predict these things. Uh, but, but we do know that, uh, that there, were, there were Roman writers uh, for example, uh, one of the popes, we're told, was a, was a very good writer, Pope Victor. But Pope Victor was actually from North Africa. You know? so, so he's in Rome, he's writing, uh, and, and he's, uh, he's doing important work. He made some important decisions for the history of the church, but, he's, uh, but his writings have not survived. And, and frankly, very few of the writings of the popes of the second and third centuries have survived. But the writings of the North Africans have, uh, you know, there there was this great groundswell of um of of literary culture at that time, and it was profoundly influential on 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 the culture in Italy, the Latin Christian culture. Uh, that there there was probably a Latin liturgy in North Africa from the very beginning of the church there. The Latin liturgy did not reach Italy until probably the middle of the fourth century the fourth century. And it's quite likely that it was based on or influenced by the African liturgy. And we see that, huh. that Africa is generally the, the place where literary, um, or, or I'm sorry, liturgical uh, innovations took place and gradually found their way across the Mediterranean uh, to, to Italy. But, yeah. they, but so many of them began in North Africa. Do you think that that Latin liturgy would have come, uh, did that come before or after the Council of Nicaea? And I mean, Nicaea itself, you, you treat in the book uh, because it's so related to Alexandria. Oh, sure. Uh, so would there have been, with the council taking place, the the first ecumenical council, the meeting of the world's bishops coming together, then maybe some of that cross-pollination where the, the Northern African fathers with their Latin liturgy are, are kind of bringing it to those who would then go back to Rome? Well, there, there's a lot going on. You know, when, when Christianity arrived in Rome, uh, Greek was the universal language at that time. And so it, it, it probably seemed like a natural thing to, to do the liturgy in Greek. And then liturgy is by nature conservative. And so you don't, you don't change things. Uh, and, and so it probably remained in Greek for, for those centuries. What we find happening at the beginning of the fourth century is the legalization of Christianity. First time first time in its history Christianity is is legal to practice and so things are are, are coming out from under uh, the, the Christians are coming out of the catacombs so to speak and uh, and and there there's there's room for development you know there's um, there's uh, it, it's possible to talk about these things for the first time my guess is that the Latin liturgy developed uh, in Rome sometime after the Council of Nicaea it's 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 kind of murky you know we don't we don't yeah. have the 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 documentary record that we'd like to have well that got me thinking about another another aspect just of of your own writing mike um with this book africa and and the the roots of the church looking back at this important moment of of the church's history coming coming from africa but then your other books too you've got friendship and the fathers uh you've got these these books where first of all there's a lot of patristics there's a lot of the of the fathers yes. of the church that that you're writing about but then there's also an awful lot of history so that just got me thinking all right this is this might be just the the first tangent that we take here but um <laughs> if i were to ask you academically mike aquilino what are you <laughs> <laughs> 
are you are you a theologian? Are you a church historian? Are you what what are you going for? And what's what's your how would you define it yourself? First, I'll tell you what I'm not. I'm not an academic. So, no, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a historian. My background is actually in journalism. (laughs) So so I mean, I uh, I'm a journalist. I consider myself a journalist whose beat is the first eight centuries of of Christian history. (laughs) And what I'm trying to do is take the work that's being done right now, wonderful work that's being done now by academics, by scholars, um, but the but but the work is is inaccessible to most people. They they can't read it, you know, in in all of its technical glory, or they wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't enjoy the reading of it. Right. Um, I try. I, I tried, but I try to take that work and and put it in a form where people will read it. Okay. And and my thesis is this: that the church fathers do not belong primarily to academia. They belong primarily to the church. And that means they belong to ordinary people. You know, they belong to to those who are dependent on them. Uh, they belong to those who would look to them as fathers, right? Yeah. Because they're the fathers of the church. That's why we call it patristics. Uh, so so I want to return the, the knowledge of the fathers or reinvigorate the knowledge of the fathers in ordinary people in the church. I think people are so afraid of history right now. Uh, Our collective memory probably begins uh, with the last episode of Seinfeld. You know, it doesn't go back very far. Um, uh, Matt's too uh, young to remember that. He he didn't see it. I've I've seen Seinfeld. You've seen it as reruns. You didn't watch it live like the rest of us. Yeah, Yeah. it has subtitles, right? Where'd you watch it? Netflix, five years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Well, exactly. All right, so on that shelf behind you, you've got your ancient Christian commentary on the scriptures that right. just gives you the Bible. It gives you these these beautiful uh, the the gospel passages and and whatever other book of the Bible you you want to read. And then it'll break down each of those little passages with commentary from from the fathers. But, yeah. I mean, the first time most of us encounter the fathers. Uh, it's you know I, I didn't really hear anything much at all about the fathers until I was in the seminary studying philosophy mm-hmm. and theology, and so I'm presented all of a sudden with Saint Augustine for the first time and his in his philosophy, and then later on getting into his theology. You're given the fathers then sort of for the first time, but it's always in big academic tomes. It's not really in something accessible. I pick up your book, uh, the fathers and and friend, uh, friendship and the fathers rather. And what struck me was how in Friendship and the Fathers, you just kind of say, okay, here's a couple of things about friendship, and now here's what the fathers say. Just read what they say. Mm-hmm. And you kind of just put it out there for everybody. Here, just read this. Uh, you can handle it. You can do it. What a brilliant way to approach it, and what, what a great way to make the fathers accessible to people. Well, when I was very young, I was really influenced by the great books movement, you know, which which mm. uh, which which wanted to get people into the ancient texts. I do think that... Um, it's it's good to start by giving them whatever historical detail they need for context, and I tried to do that um, by by telling them about the figures uh, we're going to encounter in this in this work of literature. Um, but after that, it's best to get them into it. And and what I find is that for most of the writings of the fathers, that's possible. At least if you um, it, you know, if you take excerpts, people can can deal with that. Uh, it seems the ancients had a had um, a longer attention span than than we have, uh, and and so so they they I, I don't think ordinary people uh, have the patience 
to deal with some of the longer works, but they, they can take mm. it in chunks. And that's what I try to give them. So what would you say to, so, so the personal context for me is I'm, I'm in grad school. Actually, I go to Franciscan uh, online, but as a result, I'm encountering, you know, many of the fathers for the first time. Uh, Cause my, funny enough, my undergrad degree is in songwriting. So, you know, songwriting to theology, a very natural jump. Um, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> and that's why my job in between those two was being a gym teacher. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you see what how the you logic say? flows here. It's beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. I follow the natural course of events. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what would you say to the, to the Christian that, you know, learns for the first time that Tertullian died outside the church or that Origen died outside the church? Uh, would you, so, so in my head, right, I say, okay, well, you know, I put a great amount of stock in C.S. Lewis's words, you know, and we know that that was not the same situation, uh, meaning, meaning he wasn't Catholic, you know? Yeah. Uh, so is it, is it a situation like that? Is that a fair comparison to make? Is it, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's highly debatable whether Tertullian and or Origen died outside the oh. church. You know, Great. frankly, Please yeah, we me. don't know. <laughs> we have no idea how Tertullian okay. ends his life. You know, he okay. just kind okay. of vanishes from the scene and there's no yeah. account of it. What right. we do know is that just a few years after his death, um, uh, Cyprian is, is, uh, is referring to him as the master. Right. Now, Cyprian's the bishop of Carthage. Right. He's a very bright guy yeah. and a very holy man. And, 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 and it's unlikely that he would be calling Tertullian right. uh, the master if right. Tertullian had died outside the church. Now, right. now uh, but, but the bottom line is we don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. We do know that Tertullian's a very important figure because he was the first theologian writing in Latin, for one. Right. And uh, you mentioned he's the first one to introduce the word Trinity, right? Trinity and, right. and so, sacrament, you know. Right, so as many. far as contributions go. Right, <laughs> you know, he's a giant. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so, you know, so, but, but he is problematic because, because he did go into a period of rebellion. You know, he, he, uh, he thought that the Pope and the bishops were too lax in his time. And so he, you know, got bent out of shape and he started to hang around with a group that began within the church called the Montanists, mm -hmm. right? Okay. And they emphasized charismatic authority. Okay. That people mm -hmm. would get the gift suddenly and they would, uh, they would, they would, they would kind of deliver oracles from God. Right. Now, they did kind of, they did observe a very rigorous morality. And I think that's what impressed Tertullian, that they were disciplined. They had disciplined lives. Their lives looked Christian, according to what Christ, you know, Tertullian believed about Christianity. So he, um, so he went and he started hanging around with them. And that's the last we know about him. Right. But we don't. Right. Maybe, to, to say maybe the he, statement, he died outside the church, right. that's that's too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And the same thing with Origen, you know, and he's a long story, too. Um, right. uh, so, I mean, we could we can we could have the same discussion about Origen. You know, Eusebius is kind of in the same boat. You know, he opposed Athanasius and uh, and and gave aid and comfort to to the Arians. So what do we do with Eusebius and Theodore Mopsuestia and so many others? Now, the way the way. Um, uh, and someone took me to task, actually, for including uh, Origen, Eusebius, and Tertullian in the first edition of my Fathers of the Church book. And huh. uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I took it seriously because uh, because this is a reviewer I really respect. And what I did was I went through all of the petrologies, all of the, the 
textbooks on the church fathers from the 19th century and the 20th century. And there are a lot of them. They're behind me here. But I went through each and every one to see which of them referred to these men as fathers. And it really did come down to about half and half. Um, that, uh, that about half of them thought that the contributions of these men were such that we, we really have to count them among the fathers, even though they, they, uh, they did straight in certain respects. Um, now, half of, half of the petrologies did not go that way. Um, I also tried to look at what the current magisterium was doing. And what I saw was that uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, who was Pope at the time I, I wrote that book, Pope John Paul II was, um, was quoting Origen, for example, and Tertullian in his magisterial texts, right? He was quoting them, citing them as authorities. The Catechism of the Catholic Church cites Origen and Tertullian right. uh, as authorities. Right. And as far as I've been able to tell, Tertullian is the only one who is referred to in the Catechism as a father of the church. <laughs> so so I think yeah. I think it's okay to, to right, talk yeah. about them as fathers because of their their particular contributions. Right. But it and, also and emphasizes I appreciate that, that, that layer. Because, yeah, please, Father Sam, you go. I was going to say, it, it emphasizes that that layer of they can say things, they, can, they, they, they wrote things, and they might have been correct about the vast majority of what they said, but they also might have, have made some mistakes. They, you, we can't be yes. right about absolutely everything. Contrast that with Arius. And oh, so yeah. Arius, who you write about in uh, in this book, Africa and the Early Church, a Arius, the 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 great first heretic, right? Mm -hmm. um, the how how do they call him the the proto heretic or something? I don't know. Just this <laughs> this title here. He is the 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 one who is denying from the very beginning, and so it's shot throughout all of his theology that Jesus is not the Son of God. That he there was a time when he was not. Uh, that they are not of the same substance. And so from the very beginning, all of the stuff that Arius says is contrary to the faith. Whereas Origen, Tertullian, these great these great writers had tremendous theological output. They may have strayed into some topics where they were mm -hmm. wrong, but there's also so much about what they said that was absolutely true and rooted in in what the gospel has revealed and, and what is what has been shown to us. Yeah, quite often when uh, when Origen is is speculating, when he's putting his opinion out there, he will identify it as such, and then he'll say, "But if the Catholic Church should tell you something that's contrary to this." you always go with the Catholic Church, right? So Origen was very consciously trying to adhere to the church. He was just a, a, a speculative theologian uh, writing at a time when he had no predecessors. Uh, there were many after him, but he was really yeah. the first one out of the gate. And he was, he was, he was, um, he was doing something new. Arius, as, though, as you say, uh, was doing something corrosive, and he was rebelling against authority. He had been uh, reprimanded and silenced, and then uh, he, he underwent even further discipline from his own bishop, Alexander of Alexandria. Uh, but he continued to do damage and divide the church. Uh, now, Arius, Arius believed that, that Jesus was a creature. Oh, a very great creature, but still just a creature. He was right. not co-eternal with the Father. He was not co-equal with the Father. Um, so so he's kind of God-ish. <laughs> he's created to be God-like, but uh, but he's yeah. not God. And 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 uh, and Alexander and then later Athanasius uh, see that that there's something fundamentally wrong here, that 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 this undermines our very idea 
of salvation, if this is not God himself coming down to take our nature and to suffer what we suffer and to die for our sake, that there's something fundamentally wrong here. Um, and of course, the significance of, of that episode for, for my book is, is that it took place in Africa. It was the great drama of the fourth century. After the legalization of Christianity, there's this horrific civil war that takes place within the church, and its and, it, and its epicenter was in Africa. And the 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 man who is primarily responsible uh, for its solution, uh, for for bringing about peace and clear doctrine, is an African, Athanasius of Alexandria. Yeah. Now. With the Council of Nicaea and Athanasius, Athanasius Contramundum, so yeah. I, I think that Eusebius being against him at one point is, well, so was everybody. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to hold that against Eusebius, right? Because ev yeah. everybody was against Athanasius. But Athanasius and, and his, I mean, his being exiled for the faith um, and then sticking with it all the time, never never at all bending or, or mm -hmm. walking back any any of that. So first, I think we've got a great example in Athanasius of that, that depth of faith. But then if we look at the Council of Nicaea and what happens there with the homoousios, uh, so a Greek term from Greek philosophy being brought into a discussion about God. So it's not a biblical term. It's not a Hebrew term. It's not something that's found anywhere in Revelation, but it's it's brought in. And then I remember in, in theology uh, learning this, the homoousios, and then there is the homoousios and the homoousios. And so all these different, <laughs> these different pronunciations, well, like different actual words, but yeah. how just one little letter mm -hmm. changed the whole meaning. Now, I couldn't possibly hear, sit down and tell you exactly what the differences were for those, those different words, but... Um, then hearing it, okay, so homoousios translated then into, into Latin consubstantial, right? So when we have this, this word consubstantial, it's, it seems a little bit, uh, I don't know, a, a little bit easier on us. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet multiple languages now coming together, different language groups, introducing words from different languages, words from outside of the Christian sphere, outside the, the, the mm -hmm. sphere of revelation, and then having to, to translate those into other, other languages and to, to make this accessible in, in different ways. And then from there, well, then the different accents of Christianity that, that come out. Uh, so there's a Latin accent, there's a Greek accent, uh, the different things that will be emphasized. And so just look at the Eastern Church and the Western Church uh, mm -hmm. and the different ways that we emphasize different things. But you also talk in here about some of the, the Latin, the very literal Latin accents. Uh, and so there's there's an African accent with oh, yeah. Latin versus oh, sure. uh, the Roman accent with Latin. Um, let's let's talk about those different accents because I think there's something fascinating about them. Uh, well, uh, I mean it, it's it's just a natural thing that happens. You know, if if um, if someone just blindfolds you, puts you on a plane, you get off the plane, and uh, and suddenly you hear people talking a certain way, using using y'all for a second person plural and that sort of thing. You you know where you are, right? You know <laughs> where you are if everyone's talking that way. Um, yeah. uh, and 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 so on. You know, they, they could they could drop you off in Boston, and uh, and you'd have the same. The same experience, right? You you'd know where you where you are by the um, by 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 the the language, and and so there 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 were variations according to um, according to to place, all right. Mm -hmm. That North Africa had its own accent, 
in, in speaking Latin. Uh, it was distinct from from the Italian accent, the Roman a accent. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, I go into that a bit because uh, because it, it, it's of interest to Augustine. Augustine was a great rhetorician. He had grown up in North Africa, but then spent some time living in Rome and then Milan. Uh, so he was he was used to the the the. The varying accents, you know, because he was he was in these capitals, Rome, the the great cultural capital, and Milan, the administrative capital. So he got to compare all of these things. The other thing that's interesting to me about uh, these questions is um is that Augustine also talks about skin color as mm. uh, as differentiating people, right? But uh, but it's never qualitative. He just makes note of the fact that. Um, that that the uh, the land of Gaul had people who were fairer skinned than Augustine was, and that the land of Ethiopia had people uh, who were who were darker skinned than Augustine was. But he notes it just as if he was saying that in this land, uh, uh, it you know the people were a mountainous people, and in that <laughs> land they live in a plain. Uh, mm. What's interesting to me is how um, of how uh, it. What's interesting to me is 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 how different the approach to race was in the ancient world it was not the matter of significance that we've mm. we've um we we've experienced in the last few hundred years mm -hmm. in the west yeah so uh something that that you, you brought up augustine and his you know his approach to accents mm -hmm. and when i read that in your book uh the thing that crossed my mind was this is the new evangelization mm. Right, the idea that he's saying, okay, you may say this word one way, and maybe it should be said this other way, but what you need to do is, so long as you're using, you know, pure language, as yeah. in, if I understand that correctly, it was correct language, correct yeah. words, mm -hmm. um, you need to make sure that you are understood and not just heard. That's right. That's right. And that's that's Augustine, the rhetorician. You know, he had the chair and rhetoric in the imperial court mm. in Milan. So he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And he knew how to get the word out there and be persuasive. Yeah. I said, wow, this new evangelization, it's pretty old, huh? It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of, of Augustine, um, you, you mentioned obviously his tremendous output and the positions that he had that, that gave him a lot of access to these, to these different places. But uh, another place that you, you mentioned is that Origen is widely regarded as one of the most prolific writers of his mm -hmm. time. Um, but first or second is up for debate. So if let's say Origen's the second most prolific writer. Would, would Augustine have the first place, do you think? Uh, or would it be somebody else? I, you know, I think I think it probably would be somebody else. Don't ask me who, uh, but uh, but Augustine did produce a lot. Uh, you know, we have so much uh, of his writing. Uh, so much has survived the the millennia now, um, and, and and yet we know that some of it has been lost because it's referred to in in other of his works. It's referred to by other people. So so Augustine did produce an awful lot, and 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 I'd say that he produced. The greatest amount of work of a high significance, right? Mm. Uh, because almost everything he did matters. It's it's canonical in a certain sense, not in the sense that scripture is, but right. it's it's part of our theological vocabulary. It's part of our our theological inheritance. Say you're going out to study the Trinity. You know, you set out to study the Trinity. I want to understand the theology of the the, the Trinity. Um, you'd probably start with with Augustine's work on the Trinity, all right? right? Because he wrote 
the foundational work in the West. Say you wanted to study Catholic morals. Well, you'd probably start with Augustine's work on the morals of the Catholic Church. He wrote what became the fundamental text in so many different areas of Christian literature, of Christian study. He even invented new genres. It's said that he wrote the first memoir, the first autobiography in, in, yeah. in history. So Augustine is an important author for all of these reasons, and he's, he's foundational if you want to understand the Western Christian tradition. And I, I'd, I'd go further and I'd say, you know, if Augustine had been the only Christian ever to come out of Africa, all the rest of us would still owe so much to Africa <laughs> because mm -hmm. because that that's how important he is. He is the the author outside scripture most quoted by St. Thomas Aquinas. He is the author outside scripture most quoted in the catechism, catechism of the Catholic Church. So he's he's rather important to the thinking of Christians in the West. And even if you're Protestant, even if you're Protestant, mm -hmm. okay, and you trace your, your spiritual lineage back to Martin Luther or John Calvin, well, you're going to find that both of those men believed themselves to be primarily influenced by St. Augustine of Hippo. Mm. So he's just, he's just a giant. You know, he was there at, as Rome was crumbling, and he was there to lay the foundations for the civilization that replaced it. Do you think as that was happening that he knew did, did he know what he was doing? Did he know that he was laying the foundations for a, a crumbling civilization? I, I think that I think there's a, a sense you get that sense in the city of God that he knew what was happening. Mm. And then at the end of his life, there he was. You know, he was he was lying sick in his bed, and, and some some historians believed believe he may have starved to death because his city was under siege by barbarians. And not only were there barbarians in the sense of cultural outsiders, societal outsiders, but they were also heretics. He hmm. saw that a lot was about to crumble. Wow. It, it is interesting, uh, just to go on a, a personal, you know, anecdotal tangent, um, <laughs> which is on brand for us. Uh, <laughs> I, I had the pleasure of, of speaking with... Um, a Protestant pastor about a year ago. My, my wife is a convert from the Presbyterian church. Um, and I remember the first time that he said to me, so in this conversation, he said, you know, we, we do have the, the church fathers. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said, Calvin, he, he read the church fathers and brought them to the, their logical conclusion. And I remember at the time that really troubled me. I said, mm. wow, wow, I, you know, it troubles me that you could that you could think that because at this point, you know, in my faith, I I depended a lot upon logic. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, the the point is that uh, I remember my my answer to that question was, well, logic is never the never a good enough reason to deny the rule of faith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in learning that rule of faith, right? Anytime I teach the church fathers, it's teaching that the fathers are a witness to the tradition. Um. You mentioned that Augustine is the first one you keep studying, right? You, you, if you're going to study this topic, you'll probably read Augustine first. Uh, if you're going to study, you know, Trinity sacraments, Augustine first. Would you say Augustine is the the church father everyone should jump in on? You know, besides the fact that they should read Africa and the early church, the almost forgotten roots of Catholic <laughs> Christianity. Uh, should they read your book first and then Augustine? Well, I think is August Augustine is is where people start naturally, okay? Because uh, that because his confessions are often taught outside of religious context. You know, I know so many 
people who converted to the Catholic faith because they first read the confessions in a humanities course in a secular right. university. Right, as literature. Uh, that's right, right, right. It's one of the great works of literature, and it's profoundly moving. Uh, and as I said, it's the first of its kind. It's the first of its genre. Mm. So it's an important work. But people often begin with Augustine anyway. Uh, mm. uh, another another uh, work that, that people often are assigned is, is the City of God, uh, or at least some parts of it, because mm. it's a huge work. It's a, it's a brick. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so people might start there. I usually recommend that people start their study of the fathers with the apostolic fathers, the right. earliest of the fathers. Yeah. It's a small group of writings, and you can get them all in 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 one little book, and uh, and you can and you can read it pretty quickly. But the reason I like to start there is because it's. It's the primitive gospel in action. It's the first evangelization at its first moment. You know, yeah. uh, when when the next generation took took the, the the faith from the apostles and then and then ran with it and took it all over the world. Uh, and so you could see this this, uh, this freshness in uh, in those writings of the earliest of the fathers, and you can see the church as it lived then. And you know what? It looks like your parish. It looks mm. like your parish. It has the same sacraments. It has the same hierarchy. It has the same terminology. Uh, it, it, it even calls itself Catholic. You know, we find that in Ignatius of Antioch. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's just so much about it that, that looks, looks like the Catholic Church and doesn't look like anything else. Uh, I think that, that Luther, Luther and Calvin were hampered, in a sense, by uh, a somewhat restricted access to the Fathers. They just didn't have all of the works of the fathers at their disposal. They didn't see all of these things. They did have Augustine because Augustine was the most important of the fathers in the West, and he he was the 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 most published. You know that that there there were many editions of Augustine available uh, mm -hmm. to these men, uh, and he was the most important to Thomas Aquinas. So so Augustine was the natural uh, next step after Aquinas. Uh, so, so they had they had those available. The, the the study of patristics as we know it today, largely emerged out of the Reformation, mm. because uh, there was a, an effort, especially in the Lutheran Church, to justify their practices mm. uh, and uh, and their doctrines according to um, the the witnesses from the early church. Right. And then the Catholic Church took it up and said, "Hey, we can do that." <laughs> Right. <laughs> and and they they did that and also um the uh the other great field that emerged at that time right after the reformation was christian archaeology because uh because there were these um street gangs in rome who used to go down into the catacombs and they would go down there and and they they'd sketch what they saw down there and once the authorities in the church saw what these kids were seeing underground they realized that the artwork of those first centuries seems to vindicate Catholic tradition against right. uh, against the claims of the reformers. So right. Christian archaeology also grew out of this, this same moment in history when there was a need for a return to antiquity and the earliest witnesses to Christian faith. 
it seems like street gangs roving around with sketch pads would be actually a, a great <laughs> thing to, to start again. Like if we could get back right, to yeah. that for street gangs, let's oh, get them yeah. back to their origins. You know, maybe something good could happen there. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> I, yeah. ne- I well, never you know, heard that before. That's yeah. great. It, uh, there's a, there was a famous, famous boy named Bosio who did that. He was a great ske- artist, you know, and wow. he would go down there and sketch what he saw. And, and he was taking it up and kind of showing it to people. And, and, and from that, we get Christian archaeology. Uh, <laughs> I have a friend um, who was in a street gang in the Bronx in the 1950s, and he said at that time, if you were in a street gang, you had to be able to sing harmony, right? And sing on the street. The street gangs would sing on the street, and that's how they'd get money, right? Wow. So West Side Story is not entirely invented, is what you're telling me. That that the finger snapping <laughs> thing in the beginning, that's that's real. That that actually happened. He said he said it was like West Side Story, except we didn't dance. Dancing was not cool, he said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as as we talk about kind of recovering the fathers and and uh, you know, Matt, I'm struck as as you're talking about this this fella saying that uh, Calvin brought the fathers to their logical conclusion mm-hmm. because I, I keep encountering uh protestants who when they discover the fathers of the church come to be catholic uh yeah. scott Hahn, yeah. uh, he, he talks about how important the 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 fathers were in his own study yeah. there was um a guy i cannot think of his name right now but he gave this whole sermon he's a protestant pastor and just a couple years ago he gave this very very powerful sermon about how he was discovering the eucharist in the father's of that. the church, yeah. and uh, there was this big like buzz. Is he gonna? Is he gonna be? I think Catholic it was now? Francis and, Chan, right? That's it. That's yeah. the name. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it was. A, I mean, it was a really powerful sermon. I right. was. I was moved by it because he was even drawing on on things and insights that the fathers had. That uh, I'm sure at some point I had I had learned it or heard it, but I had long forgotten it. And there he is, just talking about this and talking mm-hmm. about it so freely and as something so moving. And I had a conversation with uh, a Protestant fellow who I know, and he was talking about how when he was growing up, they they celebrated the Lord's Supper once a year. And he always felt this longing for more of that. And so he was talking to me and he said, you know, I would, I would love it if at my church we could we could even have like the Lord's Supper every week. And I said, become Catholic. You can have it every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't. He wasn't too into that. Um, so maybe someday. Right. But it was. Right. It was an interesting point I, that. Go ahead. No, 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 no. This is a movement going back centuries. You know, John Henry Newman followed that trajectory, and mm-hmm. so did Robert Louis Wilkin quite recently. Um, yeah. Uh, it's it's um, it's something. Uh, you know. Uh, you probably know Marcus Grodi. You know, he founded the Coming Home Network to yeah. help. Uh, uh, Protestant clergy uh, to, to to get on their feet professionally uh, once they they become Catholic. So so Marcus um, at a certain point it must have been about 10, 15 years ago uh, he he marked a milestone. He had received one thousand Protestant clergy into the Catholic wow. the Catholic Church. Um, one thousand. So I asked him at that time. Uh, I said Marcus. Out of those thousand, how many came in by way of the fathers? And he went, hmm. Out of a thousand, a thousand. Wow. You know, that's the that is the the uh, the the power of the fathers because usually people go to them 
because they want that witness. The, if you want to uh, defend, for example, the, the, the canonicity of certain books of the New Testament, mm -hmm. if you want to to defend uh, the, the doctrine of the divinity of our Lord and, and do it with clarity, and you want to show that this was the faith of the early church, you have to read Ignatius of Antioch. You have to read Polycarp of Smyrna. You have to read those great ancient fathers, Irenaeus mm. of Lyon. Um, and so once people start going into those texts, you know, they're drawn into a world that is new to them, but it's not new to you. Mm -hmm. Because it's the world that you are experiencing in a Catholic parish. It's the world that you experience yeah. at daily mass if you if you take advantage of that privilege that we have. So for a Catholic picking up the fathers for the first time, they're going to see more of what they've actually already experienced. No, the, you, yeah. Would you say that's that's going to be the mm. thing that, that yes. helps them to have the deeper appreciation of their own history? This is your heritage. This is where yes. you come from. This is everything that, that's that's happened already for you. Here it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what we see in Ignatius of Antioch. You know, we mm. find we find the structure that's bishop, priest, and deacon. We find uh, the centrality of the Eucharist, and not only that, but but um, but uh, uh, a plain statement of the that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the very flesh that was crucified. You know, that's what Ignatius of Antioch says about about that. We find baptismal regeneration. We find mm -hmm. the divinity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ. We also find the problems that you suffer in an ordinary parish. You know, he's dealing <laughs> with all those things, and we find that these are constants in human yeah. history. Um, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I love reading the fathers for that reason. You find what's essential in the faith and you also find what's constant mm. in, in, um, in human nature in the church. You know, one of my altar servers was just confirmed and he goes to one of the Catholic schools here in town. So I don't have a school attached to my parish. So he was confirmed with his classmates at school and he was telling me about the bishop being at his confirmation and just describing how, how nice it was. And I was impressed that he had listened to the bishop's homily. Wow. Uh, any any time I think you get a, a kid in eighth grade who's paying attention to what the bishop says, uh, good on the bishop, right? That's, That's right. that means he 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 really engaged. And this kid comes from a really solid family, so he was he was locked in anyway. But that he was able to come back and and almost repeat verbatim the bishop's homily was was impressive by itself. <laughs> and, awesome. and he was excited to do it. Like he yeah. it wasn't like I had I was quizzing him. He just wanted to do it. I thought it was great. But he was asking me about some of the things that, that he noticed during the ceremony. And so we got into this conversation about the differences in preaching that the priest stands at the pulpit when he when he preaches, but the bishop can sit when he preaches. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking, as I was reading your book, uh, it got me thinking about how Augustine, for example, when you read his sermons, there's almost a dialogue happening. Uh, some, sometimes he's asking these little rhetorical questions, but you almost have the sense that as he asked that question, he paused and he waited for the people to kind of nod or shout a response to him, that he's seated teaching yes. his people and they've all gathered around and when you look at old churches and uh we don't have this in america we have we just put in pews right away but going to the old basilicas in rome and, and there's no there's no pews anywhere chairs are a foreign concept in in the old basilicas so the people would have gotten as close as they could have and yes. stood like right around his his throne as as he was teaching so when you read the fathers especially the fathers who are bishops if you're reading their sermons there's something kind of conversational and you can get the pastoral sense that they have as they're speaking to their people yeah, it's not kinda. It is. It's conversational, and and not only that, but um, in the case of Augustine, in the case of John Chrysostom, 
it's entertaining. You know, yeah. these men were consciously striving to be interesting to their people and and mm. even entertaining. Uh, Chrysostom even confesses in some of his homilies that this is a weakness of his, that he's he's trying to get their attention. He's trying to get the laugh and everything. Um uh, it's my thesis that that's what got Chrysostom into trouble, that his people were laughing a little bit too eagerly as he made jokes about the Empress. And then he, he took it and he ran with it. I can say, like, as a, as a priest, I have a similar temptation. I want to I, I be entertaining. Sometimes I want to be funny sometimes. So yeah. what advice would you give to priests for, for their homilies so that they can preach like the fathers? but so that they can also uh, maybe avoid the pitfalls of criticizing the empress too much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, well, one is to be steeped in scripture, you know, Mm. to really read the scripture meditatively, uh, not just historically, you know, not just to get into the, the, um, uh, the academic footnotes and the, uh, and the historical uh, tangents, right? You don't, um, you don't just want to get into that. You want to find out what is the spiritual meaning, which is always based on the historical sense of scripture. So you have to, um, you have to get into the text. You have to spend time with it. It should be our, our daily companion, mm. the, the sacred scriptures. Uh, you know, that's one thing. It's, it's a hard thing to do because a priest has, has a busy life. But, you know, you make time for what's important. And, mm. uh, and, and you can make time for the, the daily reading of scripture even if it's just 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and not just the ad hoc reading of scripture, all right? Because there's a certain kind of reading we do, you know, if you're preparing a homily, then you do research, okay? You find sure. out what the other, what the saints have said about this particular problem. You find out maybe what the scholars have said mm-hmm. about this particular passage. Um, but, um, but, you know, be, beyond that, uh, you know, I think, I think we have to have a habit of spending time with scripture every day. The way I do it is really simple. I just go through it in a linear way, right? I start at this page and I end at that page. I just keep going straight through it. And uh, and then when I'm done, I go back to the beginning. And that's what I've okay. been doing for at least 30-some years now. Uh, and and that's, that's really helped me to feel at home in the scriptures because yeah. I'm reading all the parts that are important, but also I'm reading all the parts that seem relatively important at the time but sneak up on you, you know? I mean, they're there right. in, in the background until until they're not, until yeah. you need those, and uh, and then they come forward. I caught myself the other day as I, I was doing the Office of Readings, and the Office of Readings will have that. Often the first reading is, is scriptural, and especially as you get into like, all right, in, in Lent, you're reading uh, Moses and Israel's exile in Egypt and, and all mm-hmm. of that. And the story is so familiar. Like yeah. I've read that story a million times and I found myself just kind of skimming it and I wasn't really reading it. and I caught myself as I was doing it. So I'd like to think that at least there was a moment of repentance in my heart <laughs> for rushing through my prayers. But as I was doing it, I'm like, no, wait a second. I know the story, but just because I know the story doesn't mean that there isn't still some good fruit that I might be able to glean from this. So let yeah. me let me get back into it and and be more intentional with it. And I, I think you're right that it's not just incidental reading of scripture, but very intentional and and focused to, yeah. to really pick that up. I think you're right. What well, yeah. what we want, I think, is is for the episodes of sacred scripture, the passages of sacred scripture, to be like our memories of our own life. Okay, that's how that's how how familiar we want to be with them so that they're like memories of our of our own lives and um and i know that sometimes now at at this late age 
I'll, I'll be thinking of something that happened when I was six years old or 10 years old. And suddenly I'll get an insight into what really took place at that moment. Mm. Either, you know, something, it was something I didn't understand because I couldn't as a child, but later on, you know, you, you, you have this light. So it, it, it's, it's in our best interest just to keep going with it, to keep going back over that ground because we'll receive new lights as we get older, as we, as our experiences change and as we change, you know, and we change a lot over the course of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about, uh, you know, reading through scripture with children, hmm. uh, my my wife and I are expecting our first child in May. Nice. Yeah, he just keeps talking excited. about this. Like I know, oh. I keep bringing it up. <laughs> Once an episode, one could say. Yeah. Um, but I can't hey, wait to I'm meet looking... this kid. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. I'm yeah. so excited. Yeah. We're gonna name him Father Sam. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Renee would. I've kill always me. wanted a kid named uh, after. That'd be amazing. But. But but do you have any advice, you know, for reading through the scriptures with your kids? Yeah, you know, my my mom had a deep devotion to the sacred scripture. She she grew she was born in 1916. Uh, she grew up in a parish that was actually finally tuned to the uh, the the biblical movement that was going on in the Catholic Church at that time. And so uh, when she was when she was very young, uh, and she was teaching CCD. I think she was in high school at the time, but she was teaching CCD and the, the priest gave them all little pocket New Testaments, you know, mm -hmm. that was, she, she had that with her to the end. Um, uh, but she always made available to me children's Bibles that were illustrated. Mm -hmm. And I loved the stories. I loved the pictures. The pictures really drew me in. Uh, so I, I think that, I think that that's great. You know, uh, whenever you can get, uh, you can get uh, kind of a retelling of the biblical stories. That that's that's wonderful. I mean, that's what we want kids to have. My wife, who grew up Lutheran, said that for for her her in in her church, catechesis was just a constant uh, retelling of of the main stories. Okay, the mm -hmm. the story of of Adam and Eve, of Cain and Abel, of um, of Noah of Abraham, of Moses, of David, and over and over again, mm. every year they would tell these stories. But every year the kids were a little bit older and could handle it in a different way. And so mm -hmm. the story is told in a slightly different way. So it's important to have all different kinds of resources around mm -hmm. that tell the biblical stories in different ways. I, I was really happy to see Emily Stimson Chat Chapman now uh, has a book out in verse, you know, uh, mm -hmm. that's that's talking about about kind of the fundamentals of biblical theology for little kids. It's a picture book, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what we should be doing is finding the the best most effective ways to reach kids with the best doctrine and the best yeah. habits of reading and 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 i think it's a great time to be alive for that reason yeah <laughs> there's a publishing explosion going on yeah i'm of the yeah. opinion that there is a renaissance of catholic illustration going on oh yeah that that all of a sudden you're oh, seeing yeah. this yeah this youth catechesis that is just exploding it's awesome yeah yeah well, and, and you bring up the idea of verse and, and how kids can learn so easily through rhyme and through the, the yeah. sort of structured things, because as they're developing language, word association is going to be really important. And so remembering things through rhyme. But, you know, it's interesting because you, you actually mentioned this a little bit in, in the book, uh, that this is one of the ways that Arius spread his heresy was through Certainly. songs. He was, yeah. he was writing these songs to popular melodies and just teaching error, but people picked it up because they picked it up like a song. Now, first of all, that happens a lot in Catholic hymnody these days in your, 
in your average parish, there's a lot of really bad theology that's getting spread <laughs> through bad hymns, and we got to be really careful about that. But yeah, um, yeah so here you've got, uh, from the earliest days, this has been known as a strategy. So, I mean, we're learning something there, too, just about good good catechetical formation um, yeah. and, and good other stuff. My, my dad writes a lot of music, and uh, oh, wow. he's been talking a lot about, about the Psalms, and he mm-hmm. says there's just a lyricism about it, and he likes when he can put the Psalms to, to music on his own. That's cool. And I think it's, it's really true, yeah. Yeah, that now, is cool. That We're going to really go off a little bit on a tangent here right now, because I was... <laughs> I was doing my my research here on Mike Aquilina, and um, Mike, is it is it true that you have some songwriting credits with a Grammy award winning artist? Yeah, in your background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me yeah. about writing songs with a Grammy award winning artist. This is really cool. <laughs> well, I, I'm um, I, for for quite a while now. I've been I've been writing music with Dion. Uh, from Dion and the Belmonts. Actually, he's the guy I was talking about before who was in a street gang where they oh, okay. sang on the streets of the Bronx. Right? Oh, there you go. Um, but Dion was an old friend uh, for long before we were working together. And one day, quite a while ago now, he, he dared me to write a song. He dared me to write a song. <laughs> and I did. And he loved it. So he 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 the next day he asked me to write one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and 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 he had been working on an album of covers at the time. And, uh, and, uh, and he, um, he decided to make it an album of originals and we did, we did all new music for it. And, uh, and right now he's working on our fifth album together and two of those albums were double albums. So, um, he, we, we've, uh, our songs have been recorded by, um, Van Morrison, Jeff Beck, Bruce Springsteen, Patty Scalfa, uh paul simon paul simon did too (laughs) the last song the last song on paul simon's well what he says will be his last album of original music is is a demucci aquilina song what so what you're saying is that theology and music career that's possible because that's that's (laughs) you know that's matt's dream right there yeah well, yeah. there you go. You're there telling you go. me I can write music and then talk about God during the day? That's great. You're Sicilian, aren't you, Matt? <laughs> Partly. <laughs> it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a Sicilian thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew it. We're probably cousins. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain we are. Do you know where in Sicily your people are from? No, I don't. I wish I did. I feel like I'm one of those fake Italians that can't actually speak Italian. I can't. I can't speak much. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, you probably can speak more than me. So all I know is that in high school, I took Italian and... Uh, my Italian teacher, Mr. Palma, used to look at me and go, Matteo, la bocca da morte, which means Matthew, have a mouth like the dead. <laughs> so, you know. And that's when you'd get kicked out of class and come to my office. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, Father Sam was my chaplain in high school. So I used to I used to leave class and go hang out with him. Well, my block was was heavily populated by Sparazas, and Sparazas had the had the the grocery store next that was next door to my right, my, yeah. my apartment building. So I'm I'm uh, I'm betting we have some um, some uh, some kinship here. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, um, your music, the the songs that you're writing, are are you writing about explicitly Christian themes, implicitly Christian themes? How, how, how do you approach music with the background that you have in journalism and in the fathers and, and all of this? That's a good question. Um, uh, a couple of the songs that we've done, we did a song about the guardian angels um, and we did that with, with Bruce Springsteen and Patty Scalfa. It's called. Do you mean the, 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 the guardian, the guardian angels that God sends or the guardian angels like Curtis Sliwa? 
uh, the guardian, guardian angels that God sends. Okay. You know? So, um, so it's about the guardian angels and, uh, and it was on, it was on, on our last album, which is stomping ground. Um, and, uh, and Bruce Springsteen plays guitar and harmonic on it. His wife, uh, uh, sings, sings, uh, uh, you can't say background vocals because, uh, she, she just, she just, she was amazing. Um, wow. so, uh, so, that's 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 an explicitly religious song. Um, yeah. Sure. On, on the album before that, Bruce and Patty also uh, worked on "Hymn to Him," which is uh, which is an explicitly religious song. I'd say that that there, there's a Christian worldview in everything we do. I was mm-hmm. um, I was out for coffee recently with a guy uh, who criticized the 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 work that Dion and I do together. Because he said he doesn't see a redemption arc in our songs, and that mm-hmm. we'll we'll sometimes have a persona in a song of a of a guy um, who's over the top in his approach to whatever uh, love or uh, or drinking or something like that. And uh, and I think one of the keys to understanding the music is is satire. Okay, that um mm. that the Christian artist doesn't save his characters because a lot of people resist salvation. You know, in yeah. the course of the song, okay. So, so some of some of our 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 songs are about, for example, addicts. You know, Dion was addicted to heroin for fourteen years, and wow. we do have songs about addicts who are in the throes of addiction, and by the end of the song, they consistently refuse to see their situation for what it mm. is. You know, so I mean, I, I think that the Christian artist is still. Uh, responsible for reporting things as they are as wow. he yeah. finds them and uh and 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 i think it's clear to people who he who listen or it should be clear to people that this is not the way they want to be okay we have a song called crying shame for example which describes an addict who's in denial you know mm-hmm. he, he's he doesn't even he, he won't even take responsibility for his blackouts and that kind of thing so so he keeps saying it's a crying shame. It's a crying shame the way people treat me, right? Mm. It's a crying shame that no one covers for me. No one takes up my cause. But there's an irony to it because he's the crying shame because he's crying and and he's yeah. shameful. You know, I mean, yeah. his life is shameful. So I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I I think that everything we do is implicitly Christian. Uh, but but obviously some um, some would take us to task for that sure uh, because they want it they want our our characters to be saved by the end of the story yeah, yeah. you are you are hitting home on something that I've been thinking a lot about uh, I very recently started so I I've, I'm just busy person so I haven't been writing as much but the last three four weeks I I decided you know what I'm gonna try and write like way more than I can or I, I have been rather. Once the baby's born, you'll have a lot more time. Um, yeah, you know what? the The joke is that I've been telling people that once this kid's around, I'm finally going to get some rest. Um, <laughs> but, but I have been struggling with this idea of so so the 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 concept for me was well, you see these you know the Psalms, and common in the Psalms you see David you know crying out, but always coming back to like always comes back to the Lord, and so I said, does that have to be my mm-hmm you know, my template for writing music. Do I have to show this character returning? And if I don't show this character returning, am I enabling, you know, someone not to return? Because I was writing this song Mm. very recently where the uh, chorus of the song uh, quite literally is just repetition of don't abandon me. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and it's cause I, I have a good friend going through a terrible time. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps I shouldn't say it on the air, but I'm gonna right the, the chorus is don't abandon me. And for the f- most of the song, it's coming from the person. And by the end of the song, it's coming from God. That's, that's the way it's supposed mm-hmm. to turn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was saying, you know, you don't really see, you don't really see this person come back. You know, and, and am I doing something wrong and not showing that redemption arc? So you you talking about how it isn't the writer's job to save the person mm-hmm. is like yeah. freeing. You freed me from my chains, Mike. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I, I could do that. Yeah. And know. there you are, the writer freeing a person. Yeah. Um, well, as, as, as you're talking about this, guys, I, I keep hearing Flannery O'Connor. Absolutely. Right? This is, this is yeah. Flannery O'Connor's whole literary style, which is she mm-hmm. writes about the darkest things in, in human experience. Uh, and there's not always the redemption arc. There's not always the person coming back. There's there's often, I mean, some of her stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find, mm-hmm. is one of the darkest endings to a story I've ever heard in my entire life. I'm not going to spoil, spoil it. it. I haven't yeah, read go, it. <laughs> go pick up yes. Flannery O'Connor and, and read it. I mean, she's a fantastic writer, but... She doesn't have that redemption arc in all of her stories, and I would say in the majority of her stories. Right. Yeah, no I mean, wouldn't it be missing. naive if if it would be naive to say there's always a redemption, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, no one's ever going to describe her as inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the Avett brothers talk about it. They've got that song, uh, We Can't Be In Love Like The Movies. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're saying that real life is more than just two hours long. And so there's, mm-hmm. in, in the movies, everything's easy. You can freeze frame. Uh, there's there's all, all these things that happen and everything gets tied up with a nice bow at, at the end. But that's not what real life is. And right. so the I think songwriting allows you to explore what's what's real life. Literature allows you to explore what's what's the real life story here. And even even scripture. All right, let's come yeah. back to the fathers for a second. Because <laughs> what do they find? But they find all those archetypes from the Old Testament that are are prefiguring something that's going to show up in the New Testament. And then yeah. in the New Testament stories, they see these things. And then that's also what gives them the courage to face down even martyrdom itself, because they know that even that thing that is not so redemptive or isn't so positive, they may not they might not see what that final outcome is, but they they know there's something there, yeah, and they know it's worth diving into anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I I uh, you know, I think it's important that we we be there, you know, in 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 all the the alleyways of the world, you know, with the angels, you know, uh, and, and trying to make a difference. Uh, I don't, I, I think that the people who listen to Dion, they know he's a Christian, right? They, they know, you know, where he's coming from, uh, but they love him because he keeps putting out good music. Um, 25 years ago, Dave Marsh said in Rolling Stone that, um, that Dion was the only member, uh, the only artist from his generation uh, who was still producing new music in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And here he is, he's 25 years later, he's still producing new music. He's, he is an inspiration to me, but he's, yeah. he's, uh, he's, he's, he's a, a remarkable songwriter. I've been privileged to learn it from him. Man. Awesome. I have, awesome. I have one more thing. If, yeah. if I can impose on your time. All right. So we're, we're talking Africa and the early church, the almost yeah. forgotten roots of Catholic Christianity. You have said that your preferred area is as a as a journalist covering the first eight centuries of the church. Yeah. But I would like for a moment to invite you to engage in a more contemporary journalistic activity. 
Mm. Right. And that journalistic activity is uh, papal prognostication. Okay, now this isn't this isn't dark. This is something that journalists do every single time the Pope coughs. They start wondering who's the next Pope going to be. Will there be an African Pope? If not the next Pope, will will we have an African Pope? Well, we've had African popes before. Pope Victor, mm-hmm. I was going to, dis- to talk to at some point. He he was one of those names that kind of flew into my 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 head and, and back out. But um but but yeah, I mean I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have an African Pope. Uh you know, it it's it's certainly not off the off the boards, and there have been so many uh, African prelates who've been celebrities in in the the world of the church. You know, like um, uh, Cardinal Sarah, for example, very sure. recently. You know, and um, and uh, and oh, the name of the man who was Congregation for Divine Worship, uh, Cardinal Arinze. Cardinal Francis, yeah, Francis Arinze. Yeah. He, he, you know, he's another great man. Um, what a guy. And, and so I think, um, I think that there, there, there will be, there will be plenty of, of, uh, of candidates, and, uh, and I think it's a, it's a real possibility for, for the future. Yeah, I remember hearing a, uh, a talk that Cardinal Lorenzo was giving, and he was, he was talking about John Paul II's, uh, I think it was an encyclical, Dives et Misericordia. Mm-hmm. It's talking about the the divine mercy that that God shows, and and how John Paul's articulating the this teaching on on mercy, and Cardinal Lorenzo said, "Listen, if you don't have a copy of this, you need to go and buy one. And if if you don't have the money, sell your overcoat and get it." It's su- <laughs> he said, "It's summertime; you don't need an overcoat." And he was just, it was just beautiful the way he said it. He was so em- like just so emphatic that this is this is important, and. You know, hearing him, and this was many years ago now, uh, but hearing him, it got me thinking. There's, there's a, a joy, and then you start hearing about the the growth of the church in Africa. And if you look at what's happening to to Catholics and Christians in Nigeria right now, and the way that they're being they're mm-hmm. being persecuted, and they're facing down their persecutors, um, yeah. and shedding their blood in a very real way. Can, right now, it's happening in Africa. So yeah. we have both uh, the fastest growing church in the world is in Africa. And the most persecuted church, we might say, is mm. is in Africa. Um, it seems to me, if Tertullian says that the blood of martyrs is the seed of faith, As that he does. it would seem like Africa would be a place where there's going to be a pope sometime soon. Yeah, coming out and it of shouldn't that. surprise us, you know. Yeah, uh, there, there's so much of our interior world that is African, and we don't know it. You know, you mentioned that one quotation, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There are so many of these lines that that are in our heads as Catholics, and they're there because, uh, you know, they they came from Africa, right? What does Athens do with Jerusalem? See those (laughs) Christians, how they love one another. You know, it is certain because it's impossible. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Rome has spoken. The matter is settled. That came to us from an African, right? Prefer nothing to Christ. You know, Benedict often gets credit from that for that, but he stole it from Cyprian. <laughs> you know, so um, so there are just so much. Uh, there's so much of our interior yeah. world that was placed there by the African Church, and it's good that we're recovering that. Mm. Amen. Awesome. Oh, this is great, Mike. Thank you so thank much. You. You've been you've been great with giving us so much of your time. Oh, um, anytime. You guys are wonderful. This is awesome. Uh, yeah, Africa this was such a and, the, and the early church, the almost forgotten roots of Catholic Christianity. One of seventy uh, odd books that Mike Aquilina has published. <laughs> and they you are can... odd. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
You can also go to fathersofthechurch.com. Is that right, Mike? Yes. Fathersofthechurch.com and get more of, uh, of Mike's stuff and uh, learn, learn more about what he's doing. But Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on The Tangent. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. I'm Matt Sparaza. God bless you. <laughs>